All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tutt. This is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Good morning, Bradley. So uh, three things that we're going to talk about today. One is the shooting at the Super Bowl parade and kind of more broadly what it is we can do about this. Uh, second is uh, the super PAC we've been thinking about called Dictators for Biden. What do you mean we? Who's been thinking about it? Me. You? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> you, is you're it on your text chains? Not really. I, I kind of floated it. No one really reacted to it. But um, you're you're forging ahead. We as in that I texted you about it. Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. I'm just and thought, you replied. I, I just thought you were you were. No, like, there's there's no there's no no one else seems willing to indulge me in this absurd. Okay, because sometimes you say we and you could mean lots of people, I, but if I it's just could. mean you. That's a I just thing. mean me. Okay. Uh, and then the third would be sort of a bunch of different tech topics: Uber, Lyft, Nvidia. Meta, some stuff like that. Yeah, uh, public pension funds need to divest from Meta. That's what I read in the Daily News. Yeah, you, you know, if the Daily News says it, it's got to be right. <laughs> um, um, so anyway, uh, yeah, you want to start with um, with well, the shootings? We should, yeah, why don't we start with the shootings, not to be too uh, cavalier about it. But so, so, you know, it, it's funny because in a way, look, there are literally mass shootings now in the U.S. almost every single day. And for some reason, the notion of it happening at the Super Bowl parade seems slightly more jarring than the other types of mass shootings, which I'm not sure why, because I don't know how much more horrific it could get than like in a school. Um, and then it actually turned out that it was it was still a mass shooting because 22 people got shot and one person died, but it was like more of two gangs shooting at each other as opposed to one deranged individual just trying to kill as many people as possible. But but still mental illness and, and a massively deranged society gets you to that place one way or the other. And so... You know, we live in a world now where I guess we could just accept that, like, wherever you go in public, you know, you're just sort of taking your own risk. And if your kid goes to school or you go to church or Walmart or a parade or whatever else, you just might get shot. Um, or we could try to do something about this, right? So I tried to kind of break it down a little bit. It's sort of why does it keep happening and what could be done about it? So why? The first is at four reasons. Just broad-based dissatisfaction and pessimism across society, right? We have, if you look at every poll, people are more pessimistic than they've ever been, even though the standard of living in the world is the highest it's ever been. Um, social media, as we know, is just purely the unhappiness machine. It both causes you to compare your life to a fictitious version of someone else's, you feel inadequate, and then shows you everything bad happening all over the world, everywhere, all at once. Um, there is more existential risk globally, as we've talked about before in this podcast. So where it's just nuclear weapons when we were kids, that risk still exists. In fact, with the news of Putin now trying to put nukes in space, it's actually worse than ever. But on top of that, you've got you know significant pandemic risk, climate risk, and perhaps AI risk as well. Um, and at least in the U.S., you know, while the standard of living in the world has gone up a lot over the past 25 to 50 years, and while things like life expectancy is, is way up and extreme poverty is way down, um, you know, it does come to a certain extent at the cost of jobs and opportunities here locally. So people in the U.S., I think, are even more pessimistic and more upset and just have even less hope for their own future. So that's number one. Number two, we just have this incredibly highly visible broad-based inequality. And look, I'm a beneficiary of this, right? I'm very much someone in the 1% who has the the particular skill set that yields a lot of rewards uh, in the particular economy and society that we live in. But we have a combination of extreme inequality, uh, which I think we've always had to a certain extent, with the exception of maybe there was a brief period in the 20th century of capitalism where the disparity between, say, CEO pay and kind of the starting worker pay 
was smaller than it is today. But over the course of humanity, you know, there were literally serfs and nobles. And um, uh, I'm not justifying. I'm just saying it's, it's not that it's the inequality itself is new, but I think it's broadcast in a way that makes it so much more difficult for people to be able to live with and accept. And I don't blame them, right? So you've got social media, which billions and billions of people are on, um, that shows you what you don't have and what everyone else does have, or at least a fictitious version of it. You have reality TV that just celebrates these fucking rich idiots in every conceivable way, shape, and form. And so people feel inadequate and they feel deprived, um, and that makes them upset. Third is we have a massive mental health crisis and a massive drug crisis. I, I think the mental health crisis to a certain extent, are, are again, our physical health overall, even with the obesity epidemic and everything else, is still the best it's ever been, right? Just because modern medicine has taught us so much and we've learned about the value of exercise and sleep and nutrition, and not everyone adheres to it, but overall life expectancy, although it has dipped in the US in the last couple of years, globally does keep going up and up. But in some ways, the gains that created these scientific uh, benefits, that created these forms of, of testing, these forms of, of prevention, of, of, of screening, uh, everything else, at the same time, I think, have created so much mental strain in terms of the internet and social media and regular media and everything else that people's physical health has improved, but I think it's quite possible that their mental health has declined commensurately, right? So we have a mental health crisis, and then we have a drug crisis, right? We have this massive crisis uh, of addiction, um, both in the U.S. and globally, but especially here in the U.S., opioids, heroin, fentanyl, meth, cocaine, marijuana, alcohol is worse than all of them, um, and it's not going away anytime soon, and so you put these two things together, and then the fourth is guns are just highly easily available. There are already hundreds of millions of guns in this country. Um, it is very easy for someone to walk into a store and walk out with an assault weapon. Um, so as a result, people are really unhappy broadly. Um, they feel really inadequate personally. They are suffering more from sort of mental health crises and addiction. And they can get weapons that can kill lots of people very quickly, incredibly easily. So you put all those four things together. Of course, this keeps happening, right? So that's the first part. Okay. The second part is, can anything be done about it? So, so long term, yes, but sadly, short term, I would say no, right? All four of the categories that I just listed, none of them can be solved by a, a quick fix, right? And even if tomorrow somehow we figure out how to solve all four of those problems, there are still hundreds of millions of guns already in this country. So, you know, the solution to this is multi generational, multi decade. And the hope would be that over a period of 30, 40, 50 years, people neither have the access to kill other people just easily, nor sort of the incentive or desire or need to do so, right? But I don't think it's going away tomorrow. But okay, to even get to that point in 20, 30, 40 years, what would it take? So I have seven thoughts. Um, the first is, and this will not surprise any listeners to this podcast, we've got to create the political will. Right. It's not that we need to draw attention to the evil assault weapons, because, again, there's coverage of every shooting every single day. You, you couldn't possibly uh, broadcast it more widely. And yet we don't do anything about it, because as we've discussed so many times on this podcast, every policy output is a result of a political input. Every politician makes every decision solely based on reelection and nothing else. Only the primary matters in 99 percent of cases because of gerrymandering. Primary turnout in this country is typically about 10 percent. 
And so on the right, and, and both parties are at blame for different issues, but on the gun issue, which the Republicans are to blame, um, if you are a Republican congressman from Florida and turn out in your primary is 12% and NRA members are half that 12%, you know intellectually that it's fucking crazy that someone can walk into a store and walk out with an AK-47, but you also know that should you ever say that or try to do anything about that, you will automatically lose your next primary, and so you put one job and one life, your own, ahead of everyone else. Um, that's only going to change if the political inputs change, right? So if all of a sudden primary turnout were 36% instead of 12%, and the NRA's vote share went from half down to, say, 15%, then the math would flip, and it would be that if you didn't do something about this, you would be vulnerable to losing your next primary, and in which case you would do something because as a politician in this country, you don't actually believe in or care about pretty much anything other than staying in office, and so wherever you have to adapt to and adjust to to stay in office is what you're going to do. The only way to radically increase primary turnout is through mobile voting, is by letting people vote on their phones. Um, as the listeners here know, I've been working on this uh, for the last five, six years now. Um, we have sponsored elections in seven states, 21 jurisdictions, whether deployed military or people with disabilities have voted successfully in real elections on their phone. After getting a lot of doubt and criticism from the cybersecurity community, we decided to build our own mobile voting technology out of our foundation, Tusk Philanthropies. Three years and $10 million later, we're just about done. We're going to release it uh, this summer. It's going to be free and open source, uh, and then hopefully we can build a movement from there. But the first thing is, unless you change, create the political will and change the underlying incentives, nothing else is ever going to work. So, so number one is a prerequisite for the, the next six. But number two is assault weapons, right? I mean, literally, it's it's insane, right, that we just let people have, like, I even understand the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, the, the fear of tyranny from government and the need to have a, a, a independent, you know, militia to, to protect against that. Um, but the notion that you need to be able to fire hundreds of rounds a, a minute uh, of ammunition to kill as many people as possible, like, the, you know, the fact that we created these things and sell them and it's legal, like, it's it's even, the fact that I even have to say, why are we doing this? It's, it's just stupid in and of itself. Um, beyond that, you know, I think there are other ideas. We saw in Michigan last week, uh, a parent of a mass shooter was held liable uh, for, you know, neglect and for having guns in the house and things like that. And I think that they're an accessory to the, to the murder. Um we could do try ideas like you can't have insurance, property and casualty insurance, if you own a gun or if you own a certain type of gun. Um, we could try out more smart gun technology that would make it harder for people who weren't licensed and approved to own a gun to, to then get one and use it. So there's various things we can do. Um, we should be doing all of them. We're not going to do any of them until we have mobile voting. Um, third is we've got to treat mental health on parity with physical health, and that's true for funding for research, for care, for drug formation, for treating addiction. Um, and there's a bunch of specific things that would happen. The, the first and primary one, primary one is, is funding itself, right? So through uh, insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, um, we've got to make sure that in the same way that people are covered to go to the doctor to get a checkup, um, that they need to be able to get their mental health taken care of as well. Um, we got to train a lot more therapists and mental health professionals. We just have way too few, and as a result, even if we did provide the funding for people to go get care, if there's no one to provide the care, um, that doesn't really help. Um, this one's super technical, but an issue that we work on out of my fund, which is cross-state licensure. And so 
it, we, given that people can receive good mental health care online through telemedicine, um, there are these super protectionist laws in states that prevent doctors in one state from treating a patient online in another state. Um, that's purely just old school protectionism. We've got to sort of take that away everywhere. It exists in about half the states right now. Um, and, and we've got to start, you know, mental health care a lot earlier in life, just like there's the school nurse. Um, there should be the school therapist. And I could see people sort of mocking the statement right now and sort of how this leads to the sort of frou-frou, you know, super left-wing world. But at the end of the day, every human being suffers from anxiety. Every human being, unless you are truly a sociopath, has doubt and fear and shame and anger. And it's just those are emotions that come with being human. And if there is a way to help ourselves better understand and process those emotions, it would be crazy not to do so. So, um, so that's third. The fourth is making the internet less toxic itself. Um, again, another topic we've talked about a lot on this podcast. That would start with repealing Section 230. Section 230 is a provision of the Communications Decency Act, which was passed in 1996. What it says, just 26 words, that internet platforms cannot be held liable for the content posted by their users. The reason why this is problematic is human nature, and we talked about negativity bias on the last episode, um, we are just more drawn to negative content than positive content. And if you are Instagram or you are TikTok or whoever it is, you make your money by selling advertising. The rates that you charge are based on how many clicks are generated by your users. The more that you push negative content to your users, the more clicks you're going to get, which means the more money you're going to make. So for as long as I am TikTok or I'm Instagram or I'm X, and I'm in no way liable for the negative content that I'm pushing, I'm going to push as much of it as I possibly can because that's how I make more money. We could change this simply by repealing Section 230, which, by the way, traditional media organizations don't have this legal protection, uh, nor should they, and, and Internet pro providers shouldn't have it easy either. Um, so that in and of itself would go a really long way. Uh, Washington being Washington is so wildly dysfunctional and apt that even though this is the one issue in 2020 that both Biden and Trump agreed on in their platforms, and Biden has since called for it in his State of the Union address, they've made no progress at all. Um, the good news is you have seen states step up. There's a bill right now here in New York in Albany, um, you know, the, the apologists uh, for the platforms so like Tech NYC and the Partnership for New York City are trying to say, no, we don't, we don't need new laws. We just have public service announcements because, you know, that this is your brain on drugs announcements worked so well in the 80s that why would we just want to replicate that? Um, and but but you know, the bill in, in Albany is basically to protect minors by saying that um, the social media companies can't just bombard them with feeds and advertising and 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 doom scrolling, um, and only what they opt into and what their parents opt them into is what they can see. Um, but there's legislation in Florida and lots of states, um, those need to all pass. Um, we need a, a framework for, for data privacy. There's still no privacy protections in the U.S. on a national level, and there are very few states other than California that have them on a local level. Um, Europe has had a law called GDPR for probably a decade at this point, um, and Americans deserve that kind of protection too. And then finally, in this category, we need to be a lot more aggressive in antitrust against the big platforms. I think the FTC, Lena Khan, has done a really good job with this, um, but I think that they need more tools, more money, more leeway uh, to go after these companies. Um, fifth is kind of a very big picture one, but it's changing the underlying social norm of society, right? And, and Trump, in some ways, the reason he fascinates us so much is he kind of epitomizes the key human conflict uh, 
in one person, right? Which is he is the ultimate zero sum person. Trump genuinely believes that if you win, he loses. If he wins, you lose. And the only goal in life is to be the winner at the expense of everyone else. And that is a recipe for misery. Even when you win, you're miserable, right? I mean, this guy's got money, fame, power, fans, beautiful women, luxury, all the shit that you could theoretically want. And he's a miserable human being. He's wildly unhappy. He's wildly unhappy because he's stuck in a, in a zero-sum mindset. Um, we need an abundance mentality, which is everyone wins together or everyone loses together. And we're not all in competition with each other for, for a scarce set of, of, of resources, right? And, you know, and this, this, this obviously gets back to sort of, you know, philosophical debates that have been raging, raging for hundreds of years right now. But I, I think fundamentally, if we have a view of the world where all we want to do is see ourselves succeed at everyone else's expense, even when we win, we lose because we're going to be miserable. When it's a world where we realize that if everyone succeeds, everyone is happier because we feel better about ourselves, um, then all of a sudden, a lot of the underlying incentives that make people feel uh, so inadequate and so alienated from society that they do crazy things like shoot uh, innocent people, um, that would change. Uh, the sixth is underdressing income inequality. So uh, I've been arguing for a while now that universal basic income is the way to go on this. Uh, having worked in government, having run governments, having run state budgets, um, I think that if you did it through taxation, it really wouldn't work because in my experience, and again, I've been responsible for the state of Illinois for four years for their budget, um, is you know, for every dollar that you or I pay in taxes, you know, only a small percentage of that actually ends up being used to help somebody on the other end of it. Um, so if I pay in a dollar in taxes, you know, by the time that we're done with waste and fraud and corruption and unions taking their piece off the top and everyone else, 20, 30 cents at best is actually helping someone in need. Universal basic income just means that a dollar of my money shifts to a person the full hundred cents um, who needs the money. And then they have the autonomy to decide what to do. I know that people, especially on the left, you know, think that anyone who didn't go to Yale is too stupid to be able to make their own decisions, and therefore they should just be told what they have to spend the money on through government programs. But I actually think individuals are far better and far more capable of deciding what's in their best interest than anyone else. And yeah, if, if you gave everyone a thousand bucks a month, would some people blow it on hookers and cocaine? Sure. But relatively few, and most people would use it to feed their families or to pay down debt, or to save money, or whatever it is. Um, but the vast majority of people would use it well. So if you want to figure out a way to address the underlying inequality of society, um, there needs to be a wealth transfer. But if you're going to do a wealth transfer, doing it in a way that sort of just like, you know, makes a couple of people in the, a couple of constituencies in the political class happy and, and rich and fat um, at the expense of everyone else is it, pointless. Um, we also, at the same time, need to fix our schools, right? We have just shitty schools where the political power is to is to really protect the adults in the system, and this comes for the teachers' unions, um, then the kids in the system, and so the kids are never really the, the first people being looked out for. We're also training kids for the wrong thing, this notion that everyone should get a liberal arts degree from college as opposed to learning how to become, whether it's a programmer or a welder or whatever it is, is insane. And we also just don't have enough legal immigration in this country. So we have a lot of jobs, both high skill and low skill, that are unfilled, and that impedes economic growth and opportunity, simply because we are so anti-immigrant 
that like, yeah, I'm for shutting down the border too. Like, I don't think we should just be letting people in claiming asylum left and right. But if the Department of Labor every year can be able to say, okay, this year we believe we need 4 million additional workers in these specific categories, we should let 4 million people in who have the skill sets to do those jobs, whether it's a high skill or low skill. Um, America's sort of greatest advantage is to always absorb the cream of the crop from all over the world, right? So if you can get the most talented, hardest working, most ambitious, most dedicated people from, from every part of, of, the, of the globe, that's how you win, right? And instead, we've closed ourselves off to that. So it's literally like deciding, like, I'm, it's like going on a hunger strike. It's fucking crazy. Um, and, and the last is, is AI, which is obviously still very emergent, and we don't quite know where it's all going to go yet. But I would say that should we not do anything we are on track to basically mint a, a class of trillionaires and then have lots of people, uh, white-collar jobs through AI, specifically blue-collar jobs through robotics, um, see their livelihoods go away, uh, and they will suffer. Um, and so, yes, we have to think about how do we regulate AI in, in terms of preventing harms caused by the technology itself. But I think perhaps even more important is regulating AI so that as the economy undergoes these transformational shifts— all of the benefits don't accrue to a handful of people. By the way, like me, right? Like I am as a venture capitalist, incredibly well poised to benefit from AI financially. I've got investments in the AI space. Um, but but society is going to be a fucking mess uh, if that's what happens. And by the way, if society is a fucking mess, so what if I have a lot? I'd rather have a lot than have a little. But it gets back to the if, if I have to live in a walled complex where I'm constantly under siege and under fear, it's a shitty way to live, right? So, you know, it gets back to the zero-sum versus abundance mentality. So um, to me, those are the seven categories of things that, from a policy standpoint, could start to change the underlying both economic and psychological incentives and reasons why we have mass shootings. Um, wow, Bradley, that was a lot. And I think we, we kind of have a great roadmap for like the next year of different ways to, to book guests on the podcast and talk about this. There's sure. a lot of great shit there. But let me let me um, let me ask you a question about. So the thing that I find most despairing of all this, uh, of the way you laid this out, is this kind of idea that we're on like a multi-decade like sort of crusade here and not something which is obvious, right? Things aren't going to change tomorrow. But on the other hand. Does America do things over thirty years? No. Um, and and uh, and the I guess so. So I have two questions related to that. One, what is the model for political change here? Like the big the big change in the twentieth century, right? Is the is the crash of nineteen twenty nine and the depression, and the New Deal becomes a kind of like changes the way government and mm -hmm. and and the public kind of interact, and the government becomes a much bigger deal. And some of those things you were talking about, income inequality. Um, they don't go away, but they definitely the period where there was the the, the least inequality yeah. in, in in recent American history was you know following the New Deal. So, but that requires an enormous crisis, right? Like truly a crippling, like horrible, like everything fell apart for people to be like, wow, things really have to change yeah. in this fundamental way. So that's one way things could you know that's one impetus where people you know have no other choice essentially but to look at new ideas. But the second one is like some kind of grassroots thing, and this is gonna sound minor, but the thing that I always think about of like a change is like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right? Where like like people who were affected by this just terrible thing got together and changed the way 
that worked. Yeah. Right? Like completely. Like, you know, it's. And but, but, but let's just. So, so let's. So we're in between there. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's right. So, so, like, for example, we've talked this, I think, a little in podcast before. There was a mass shooting at a school in Tennessee a year and a half ago, two years ago. Nashville, like the one in, in Nashville. Nashville right. It, right. Um, you saw this effort of moms uh, right. from that school and others who were Republicans. Right. Try to pass legislation in the Tennessee State House, which is heavily Republican, um, to say let's protect our kids and not make them so vulnerable. You saw, and I've spoken to them, like the local evangelical and Baptist coalitions come together to support those changes in gun laws. And guess what they ran into? The same fucking problem as everyone else, which is— Did they make no progress? No progress. Absolutely. And I've, I've, I've had conversations about mobile voting, and they're interested in, in working with us on it because they recognize that right. you know they're in the same mess as everyone else. Um even though they're Republican, even though they're evangelical, um, it doesn't change the fact that primary in a state Senate you know, race in Tennessee is still 12%, 10%, 14%, whatever it is. And those voters are overwhelmingly pro-gun. And as a result, you know, maybe the legislators sort of say the right, you know, they offer their hopes and prayers or whatever it is for the families or the kids who got killed, um, but they didn't actually do anything. And so even something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, I think we that was 40 years ago, 50 yeah, years 50 ago. Years ago yeah. And I think we have shifted and drifted into a world of so much polarization and so much extremism, so exacerbated by the internet, that even a well-organized group, um, absent change in the underlying tools, is still not going to succeed. I'm rem it's funny, I'm remembering the other big movement, sort of maybe even a little before, which was the, the car seats, um, was a huge change also, obviously, it's just sort of parental inspired and all these people with kids dying needlessly yeah but but and and it, i i see on on youtube i guess is where i see it the most i see the sandy hook parents with their you sure. know various public service messages which are still wrenching um and but there's been no there's been no national movement of putting these groups together that then seems to really make well up. i mean there's attempts right there there's every town which is mike bloomberg's group right um we've had david hogg on the podcast before david's actually coming to new york next week and we're doing an event together um and it's all admirable, and I support all of it. But again, and this is why I think David agrees with this and, and wrote the follow-up. Say who David Hogg is. David Hogg is the, was one of the kids at the Parkland shooting who became sort of this leading advocate for gun safety and now has more broadly uh, launched a pack called Leaders We Deserve where he's trying to just help elect younger people with a, a broader perspective um, to, into government at every level. And um, so, so people have tried to do all of this it doesn't matter, right? All you're really able to do most of the time, if you take like the various gun groups, is they can sort of double down and succeed in the places where they're already, everyone already agrees with them, right? And this is true on the left, whether it's gun groups or abortion or whatever it is, or on the right, um, but the same underlying problem exists. And no matter how earnest they are or how much money Mike Bloomberg or anyone else puts towards it, um, until you change the underlying political incentives and inputs, none of it really matters. Um, well, we will be talking to, about this again soon. Um, should we move to Yeah, to dictators for Biden? <laughs> dictators so, for so Biden. This is a hard pivot. Yeah, this is a hard pivot. Um, so Jamie sent me, I didn't see this, but a story that said that Putin publicly said, I prefer Biden. Yeah. The U.S. is much more stable under Biden than under Trump. Can't trust the man. You don't trust Putin? Not not much. I no, mean, not as much I as I used to. Be trustworthy. Um, yeah. So clearly, Putin wants Trump to be the president for lots of reasons, and clearly, Putin is not dumb, right? He's many, many, many. He didn't have nice things, things to say about T Tucker Carlson either. 
See? I got it. He was not that. impressed. Yeah, he said. I mean, are you? What's that? Are you impressed? No, but I, I, I'm a little impressed that he went there and I, I whatever. I like, I like that he, uh, that he, he tried to get it? the journalist. Like, like Rocky fighting uh, Drago on Christmas Day in Russia. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, thank you. Um, so anyway, so, so Putin endorses Biden, right? Clearly, this was, I don't know if it was orchestrated by the Trump campaign, but at the very least was for their benefit. Yeah. So I started thinking about like, if I were Team Trump and I wanted to organize like dictators oh God, is, for right, Biden, right? right? What, what would I do and how would I sequence it? So uh, I wrote up a few steps. This is like your next novel, isn't it? I guess so. Yeah. I feel like, you know what it is? I feel like I have tons of, maybe I should just try to write for like sketch comedy because I feel like I have tons of ideas that are sort of amusing. That are, that are worth 90, 90 seconds on uh, Yeah, yeah, but they're not Saturday. necessarily uh, novel-length ideas. Okay, but, keep going. So the first thing is Putin starts it off. He says that Biden is better for stability. Then she reinforces. Uh, he says that, um, you know, yes, uh, China wants a fully stable world, and we think that the best thing for China would be if Joe Biden is reelected to another term. Um, and now you've got the, the leaders of the world's two biggest superpowers other than us, both saying they want Biden, which is obviously sending Americans the opposite message, which is if Putin and she want Biden, clearly we should not want Biden. Then you kind of layer in Netanyahu, Erdogan, uh, Millet, Bolsonaro, Orban, MBS, and you just sort of take all these different kind of dictators and sort of, you know, strongmen, and you just keep sprinkling it in one after the next saying, yeah, you know, I really hope Biden wins. I, I really think that would be better for, for our country and for the world as a whole. And, you know, you, you want to, so like, I remember this was so long ago now, but in the Bloomberg campaign in 09, from March 24th of that year through election day, we had someone endorse Mike every single day, seven days a week. And the reason why that was important is I was trying to create a perception of an invincibility and inevitability. Like there was no way we could lose because the reality is we were actually highly vulnerable. And my view was if anyone discovered that, right. we could actually lose. Right. And so we had to sort of convey the opposite. And so we spent an unbelievable amount of time and effort just generating endorsements. And it could be anywhere from like, you know, Colin Powell to the Korean Grocers Association. But we literally had one every single day. And I think the most important thing we did was in every press release when we would announce it, we would list everyone else would already endorsed him. And it created, I think, with reporters, this subconscious impression of like, this thing's fucking over, right? These guys are just sort of like a machine that can't be stopped um, when the reality was anything but that. But for as long as they believe that, then that's they- a, That's an interesting strategy because the, like usually if you were if you were down or vulnerable, you'd want to lean into the kind of into the kind of underdog, but that's yeah, not Mike's style. No, and he's not sympathetic. Yeah. We just changed term limits. He's a billionaire during the financial crisis, right. so like that wasn't so inevitability work. is the message. It, it it was we were the Death Star, yeah, right. and but it it worked. But the point we is, the Death Star. <laughs> um, you want to keep reinforcing. Now we were to be clear, so someone doesn't sort of now write you know listen to this podcast and write the wrong thing. Mike was far and away the best choice for New York yeah. City. Anthony Weiner would have Are ended up being the mayor. Are you saying he wasn't Darth Vader? Not at all. Okay. I'm just saying that we had tremendous resources that we're very scared to compete against. And right. that's one of the reasons why Weiner dropped out was he was afraid to compete against that. The reality is he might have beaten us had he stayed in the race. Um, and then would have I have this. a feeling you would have prevented that somehow. I don't know, man. I don't know. We didn't, I mean, even even once we sort of handpicked Bill I mean, he's Bill been a Thompson, sketchy character his whole life, so it wasn't yeah. like he just... Well, here's the thing with Anthony. We didn't have as much on him as he thought we did. We right. had some, right. and wherever we had, we were pounding away. Right. Right. You know, we had like P. 
people door knocking his parents months before we started our actual field and canvas campaign just to fuck with him. Um, you know, I mean, we had people, he would play hockey every Tuesday night at Chelsea Piers. Right. And we eventually, because the House voting schedule is very weird, and all so many of us in Bloomberg had, had worked in Congress, that we kind of understood that. And we knew that at some point, some vote, even if it was totally procedural, would get called while he was at Chelsea Piers. Right. So we had a photographer hidden in the stands every Tuesday. And finally, one night, uh, some vote got called. We got, you know, he had fucking wiener on the back of his jersey, and we got a, a photo of it. And the, the front page of New York Post the next day was Puck Off. Um, and all of that scared wiener. <laughs> Did you write that, Puck Off? No, it was that's the Post. Good. That was yeah. all them. Um, that's, um, but that's almost quaint with Anthony Wiener just missing a vote. But the point is, he, he would have been mayor. So, <laughs> so clearly, uh, this is me. I've been backtracking now for three minutes, but yeah. um, that, that Mike was the better option for okay. New York City. But the point is, Onward. if you can just kind of keep. What you don't want to do is, I think it's overwhelming, like, here's 23 different strongmen and dictators and, and lunatics for Biden. You want to sort of sprinkle it out to keep yeah. reinforcing the impression yeah. over and over yeah, and over again. Sure. Then you go to one level down. So now you're going into sort of like all these fringe party leaders in Scandinavia and Germany and Eastern Europe and all over the world. And you get them all sort of tweeting. And again, you, you can do some of them in groups because if they're too small, you have to package some of them together to breakthrough. Um, but, you know, you want like rallies in Europe with like all kinds of scary looking skinheads saying, you know, skinheads for Biden. Um, and that would be the fourth. The I, fifth, like, I like skinheads for Biden. I feel like that could work. That, that's the kind of energy they need. You think so? Well, I don't know. Um, the, they need something. Part five would be, and this would just happen. You don't have this. You, this will just happen. You don't have to do anything. Is Biden will denounce it very angrily. Right. right? However. Yeah. Because he's confusing in general. Because yeah. one, he's old. Two, he was confusing when he was 40, yeah. right? This yeah. is a guy known for always being confusing. Crosswise. And then you're denouncing someone for supporting you, right? right? Which right. is inherently confusing on top of yeah. it. He will make it worse. He will. Okay. Yeah. So just leave him to his own devices. Just make sure that reporters are just pounding away at him. You know, how do you feel about Bolsonaro's endorsement of you? How do you feel about Erdogan's support for you? Um, and, and he will blow it up in a way that makes it much, much worse, just like he did the other night on TV uh, after the special counsel yeah. report. Six, Trump, although on the other hand, and this is the tricky one, got to keep your mouth shut. Well, he's not going to do that. Well, so there's two ways you could do That's it. That's not going to work. One is, where well, he fall? might if he knows that like this is all hugely to his advantage. He might. Because if he if he if he is sort of like, hey, I'm the one pulling the strings here and it's really working, right. he might. But, but if there, not But he's the kind of guy who would step on his own joke. Pro right? Probably. Yeah. So I think the script I would give him is just say, These guys are all for Biden. That tells you everything you need to know. And then the other thing is they better get ho they better hope they don't get caught back channeling with all these dictators, because I'm sure that does violate some sort of espionage law. However, oh God, imagine the New York Times investigation. What's the fucking difference, right? New right. York Times can investigate. Yeah. We can indict Trump on 91 felony counts. He's never held accountable for anything. So yeah. Fannie Willis just blew up her own case. Like that seems like that's not gonna go anywhere. The only one's happening is the stupid Alvin Bragg Stormy Daniels prosecution, which in any if anything helps Trump. And so Trump, though, I would say if I were Team Trump, would do my best to either get him to not say anything, or at the very least, just see if he can just use a scripted line of like, "Yep, yeah, they're all for him. What are you gonna do?" Okay. Um, number seven, you'd have a GOP super PAC where all kinds of anti-Biden ads highlighting his support from Putin and Xi and all of the others. <laughs> You add that to immigration, and then the issue extends beyond core GOP voters and independents. And, and keep in mind, again, we're talking about an election where 
45,000 people from six swing states, maybe all we're really talking about right. who decides the presidency. So I would just pound away on ads. And then the next thing is I would use AI and create all kinds of deep fakes showing, you know, Biden hugging Xi, Biden, you know, g giving Putin a kiss on the cheek, um, you know, all of that. And then I would tie in all the Hunter Biden stuff in China uh, and then all the Burisma stuff, which is effectively Ukraine, therefore Russia, or it was at the time, uh, or different countries, but, but at least same region. Um, and you can say, Clearly, Biden is in cahoots with Putin and Xi because his kid was now, was benefiting from all this. So, so, do you think we can like turn this inside out? I mean, I I, I don't know if we need sort of so dictators against Biden. Well, 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 no. I mean, shouldn't it just the dictators be for Trump? I mean, like, of like, course they're for Trump, but that's why right, they're endorsing Biden. No, no, I understand. But if we're trying to if, if we're trying to like make this all happen. Don't we want to like? How can we use this this force to to help Biden? I don't. I, he doesn't need any more help, like burying himself, does he? No. Right. I, I don't know. That's a good question. It's a great. That's why it's it's a it's a. I'm not really sure how you could leverage Putin for your own benefit if you're Biden. For Trump, I think you certainly could. It is it is fantastic that he's that he that he says he likes the United States. Right. And, and Biden. by the way, Putin Biden to his credit. Right. He's like fuck off, dude. Has done a great job. On Ukraine, in that it's been two years, Russia still hasn't won this thing yet. Not a single U.S. troop has entered the fight. Yes, a lot of money and weapons, and hopefully there will be more if the House gets their shit together and passes the bill. But Putin's got to hate Biden because Biden has been highly competent in stymieing him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you need to use your inc your massive creative energies to imagine the downfall of Donald Trump. I, do I, I did lay this all out for Laurel. And, and she, what did she say? Don't say anything? She said, yeah. you need to use your powers for good. You need to use your powers for good. Oh, <laughs> my said, God. So, so don't move forward with this idea? She said, no, don't move forward. But I like that you that you've laid it all out here and just because it gives a... Somewhere in there, there's a blueprint someone can use for good. Yeah, but you know what? They're not listening to this podcast because I feel like we have laid out so many good ideas yeah. for the Biden campaign. Like when Bob and I had all of these you know, tangible ways that Trump policies would make individuals' lives significantly right. worse, which to me is still the best strategy you can use. I haven't seen anyone use that. Well, I, I mean, there's still time. I mean, we got to keep talking about it, right? Like one episode of one podcast, we got to, I, I agree, it's a very good idea. And it's like, it's the real thing, which is like, Forget about the the cult of personalities. Forget about age. Forget about all this stuff. Like, what's life under Biden? What's life under Trump? And which one do you want? Yep. Like, like, like it's 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 pretty simple. And 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 I think that uh, it has a kind of universality to it that like works in suburbs, works in cities, works in rural areas, works everywhere. Yep. Or should so. Cool. Anyway. All right. Hard pivot. Hard pivot. Um, melange of tech topics. Melange. Of, do you want to start? Why don't you? Why don't you just tell us a little bit about your daily news column? Of, about well, I've, I've talked and, about that, I'm, but before. But I'm interested in the reaction to it as well. Well, what's interesting? So I um I wrote I write a column every month for the New York Daily News. My column for February was about the social media stuff that we've talked about already. Part of it was sort of calling for the passage for the bill in Albany, but part of it was also suggesting to our state controller Tom DiNapoli that he could actually do something about this issue because there's $5.6 trillion uh, controlled by public pension funds across the U.S. Meta, if we use them as the example, 64% of their stock is institutionally owned. A tremendous percentage of that um, is held directly or indirectly by public pension funds. This is a bipartisan issue. And my argument was that DiNapoli could put together a coalition of Democratic and Republican controllers at the state and local levels and say to Facebook, Unless you agree to certain changes, ending surveillance advertising on kids, ending doom scrolling towards kids, requiring, you know, taking groups so that teach teenage girls how to engage in eating disorders and just fucking ban them. Um, until you do those things, 
we're going to divest, right? And if we all pulled out and we all told Fidelity and BlackRock and Wellington and all of our money managers to pull out, um, your stock's going to crater, right? And you, Mark Zuckerberg, will be worth a lot less money, and all of your employees, whose a lot of their compensation is based on stock, will be worth a lot less money. Um, now, I get it in that Facebook, we have seven stocks that are effectively driving the stock market these days, and Facebook or Meta is, is one of those seven. So I understand why, in many ways, the controllers wouldn't want to do it because it will hurt performance of what they're responsible for, which are returns from public pension funds. However, I don't think you have to get it to that point. I think that if you were able to put together a couple of trillion dollars in overall value and, a, you know, at least call it, say, 50 to 100 billion in specific uh, Facebook shareholder value and make these threats, I think you'd probably get something done. You wouldn't ever actually have to divest, but you'd have to take it to the brink. So I wrote this in my Daily News column. I was hopeful that Tom Napoli, who's sort of a forgotten man in, in New York, kind of no one, he's the controller, no one knows who he is, um, would really jump on this and thinking like, okay, cool, this would give me something to do that's meaningful and interesting. And the only reaction was his chief of staff calling all over the place to try to figure out if I was going to primary Napoli for controller. Why the fuck would I want to be the controller of New York? You the controller? Yeah, that was their question. Right? Absurd. Beyond absurd. But yeah. it wasn't like, hey, here's an idea that maybe we could profit from. Forget about substantively. Let's assume they don't, Tom Zappi doesn't give a shit about kids any more than any other politician, right? Um, here's a good political issue that I could take advantage of um, heading into my 26th reelect. Or here's how do I team up with this guy so that we can use his resources, his wealth, his platform, everything else. Um, to try to promote myself, Tom DiNapoli, right? Even if nothing happens. And instead it was, oh, do, you know, do, is he going to primary? It's like, first of all, why the fuck would I want that job? And second, like, that's your reaction is not to see how you can benefit from this thing, either politically Bradley, or substantively. I'm liking the sound of this. I feel like, remember, I remember, no me, remember me on Nikki no Haley? I, I, I think my zero, new, my new zero, cause zero, is going to be Bradley Tusker controller. Zero. But we'll just keep talking so about it. I'll, I'll just try to wear you no, down. No, you're yeah. not going to. Yeah. No. I, it, it's going to start to... Look, there's, there's one job, just totally candid, that I would love to hold in the left office, which is mayor of New York yeah, City. Yeah. I will never be mayor of so New York City. So controller's not your, your stepping stone? No. One, controller's not a stepping stone, right? So look at Scott Stringer, Alan Hevesy, Bill Thompson, John Liu, you know, wow, nice uh, job Jay Golden. The, wow, he's reeling off controllers yeah, who, now. who oh ran for God. mayor and lost, right? So one, it's actually just not a stepping stone. So I, you are a geek. You just reeled off the controllers. That's, five, that's good. five controllers. No, yeah. I think there was like seven of them in there. Yeah, something like that. So <laughs> anyway, um, I'm not even a re- I mean, In the system we have, someone like me could never win the mayor. Oh, I love I'm, you, controller. I'm not, I even, um, I'm not even a registered Democrat. Oh, I'm an independent. Okay, let me ask you a serious question. Um is there any precedent for uh, pension fund managers being sort yeah, of what amounts sure. to activists? Guns, uh, tobacco, uh, tobacco oil, apartheid. Um, but did they get together and issue sort of threats or did they Some just of them have, di- yeah, divest? sometimes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's partisan, right? But, right? but the issue here, what's so great about it is it's bipartisan, right? You have, like, take that Kabuki Theater hearing in D.C. a few weeks ago. Josh Hawley on the right, Amy Klobuchar on the left equally sort of in, indignant about the evils uh, created by Facebook around the world. Um, they don't actually have any ability to get anything done. Um, but nonetheless, so this is an issue where you could put together, and in a weird way, it's actually an even better issue for the Republicans because where the Democrats have probably a, on the controller side, a, a little bit of liability is they desperately rely on union support for their reelection. Unions want the highest possible returns for their members through their pension funds. 
and divesting from you know highly lucrative stocks would arguably hurt performance, right? right? Republican controllers aren't even uh, accountable to the unions, right? So they're totally politically kind of free to do whatever's right on this issue and whatever makes sense politically. So um, you know, in, in some ways, it's bipartisan, and if anything, probably a little better on the GOP side. I, I like this a lot better than dictators for Biden. I think. You think so? Yeah, I do. I think. All right, I got to decide one. Of the, we're heading to the long weekend. I got to decide which even, one to work on. Don't even joke. I'll about, report like, back next. We're week. not talking about Biden dictators for Biden ever again, but we are going to talk about some of these other things. So um, Uber and Lyft. Yeah, uh, finally, finally, finally have a finally profitable. <laughs> well, it's not that long, right? I mean, uh, fifth. It's they were both created, I think, in 08. so sixteen years. But is that, if you consider the... It's a long time. You think so? Yeah. So look, look. I, and by the way, Uber has occasionally... I think Lyft just made their first quarterly profit ever. Uber, I think there has been a quarter or two here or there over the last couple of years uh -huh. where they have eked out a profit. Um, so here's the question. It, there's the Amazon model, which is what Uber was following under mm -hmm. Travis Kalanick, which is... You know, Travis's vision, and obviously I am very biased in favor of Travis. We're, we're friends and we're colleagues, still our colleagues. Um, that um, Uber would effectively be the Amazon transportation. Anything getting from point A to point B, whether it's a cargo ship or a human being or a burrito, Uber would be part of that transaction in some way and, and receive some part of the economic upside of it. Um, that required building out a massive global infrastructure that included self-driving trucks and self-driving cars and flying cars and freight systems and all of these things that did require billions and billions and billions of dollars of investment. And so if that were where Uber was still trying to get to, you could say, okay, this kind of makes sense, right? But when Travis left Uber and Dara Karashari, his, his replacement, who's a much more sort of modest, low-key guy, came in and he said, okay, you know what? We're a ride hail company. We're a food delivery company. Both, you know, big, very big businesses in and of themselves, and that's what we're going to focus on. Once that you limited your vision to that, then effectively you should be working towards turning a quarterly profit, which they have been working on. They finally got there. And what's interesting is I do think um, that these two things, neither of which are cheap, by the way, right? You take an Uber, um, it can be very expensive, and you order in food, you know, depending where you live, but it, the, the feeds can be incredibly high. Um, but they've kind of Uber has become a utility almost, and Lyft, in the sense that it is just now a way that people get around. It is part of their mix, just like taxis and subways and buses and walking or your own personal vehicle or, you know, micromobility or whatever it is. Um, and food delivery, you know, at least in places here like New York City where um, the pandemic kind of changed consumption habits and behaviors, I think has it's not a utility, but it's become a social norm. And so, you know, I do think that these two companies have persevered to the point now where their underlying core products have the ability to be profitable for the foreseeable future. Um, I worry about, I don't worry exactly, I don't care, but about Lyft <laughs> in that the network effect is still very important, right? So the, the reason why Uber works is there's lots of drivers on the platform yeah. driving for Uber and... So whenever you want to, like I, I took an Uber here this morning because uh -huh. I was running late, and from when I pressed the button to when I got in, it was three to four minutes, right? right? Um, the reason why is there were Uber guys on the platform driving around Soho waiting for a fare, right? right, right. Um, and I got one, or I was one. Um, the more drivers on the platform, 
the faster it is for riders and consumers, the faster for our consumers, the more they use the platform right. and it reinforces itself. But the network effect is going the other direction too, which is if fewer people are driving for you, and while everyone, because they're independent contractors, drives for both Uber and Lyft, um, if there's less, if, if if there's less and less opportunity on the Lyft app, then the wait time to get a Lyft is longer, which means for consumers, all they want to do is in the cheapest, fastest way possible get from point A to point B. They shift over to Uber. In fact, I've made this case before. If Uber were to switch to a W two model, uh, and therefore the drivers are employees, and therefore the drivers could not drive for Lyft because they would be a full time employee of Uber, I think Lyft would go out of business because if you because the drivers would all rationally pick the better economic opportunity for themselves, um, which would be Uber because there's much more market share. They would stop driving for Lyft, and then. But Lyft, why hasn't that, that happened? I mean, because it, Uber's belief is that, and they might not be wrong, that if they, their operational costs would go by about twenty percent if they were to turn independent contractors into full-time employees. Right. And for a company that's just now for the first time ever making money, um, they thought they couldn't incur that risk. But, but yeah, but is there also and I also sort just of think an antitrust it, thing where if they knock no, out Lyft, well, like, I, I, no, I don't think so. I think there's an antitrust thing if Uber tried to buy Lyft. Right. I think you'd have an antitrust problem. It. Lena Khan, who's a friend of this podcast, but super left wing, the dream of labor and the left is to have Uber drivers become full time employees. Now Uber say, okay, we're going to do it, and then she's going to complain. No, right. she can't stop that. I just, I just mean a, a knockout punch to Lyft would create. I, a look, I've been arguing situation. this for, for yeah, sure it would, but there's nothing. I don't think the FTC could do about. That, I see. Okay. Right. Uh, I've been arguing that Uber should do this for years. Um, no one listens to me. Yeah. Well. Um, you have these crazy ideas like um, like uh, dictators for Biden, so um, maybe someone will do that yeah. one. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not. Um, so uh, let's talk about uh, one last thing. Nvidia yep. um, is on fire. Is in it the stock Nvidia market. or Nvidia? Oh, that's an interesting question. So, you were just weren't you just talking about this on? on I was. CNBC? I was on CNBC the other night. Nvidia. They said Nvidia. That's because I was like, I bet they know. I, yeah. So I, I you I know, you, you always, I was on this morning. No but, one has ever said the word to me. So. Right. Me either. So I was on this morning talking about social media stuff. I log on like ten to fifteen minutes before my hit, um, both because one, if I'm sitting there, then I have to sort of focus my thoughts a little bit on what I'm going to say. So yep. it's a good discipline for me. Mm -hmm. But also, I like to hear how they pronounce things because the same thing. I don't ever watch TV news. Um, <laughs> and as a result, I actually often don't know how things are pronounced. Yeah. So I think it's NVIDIA. But what was NVIDIA. your question about them? Well, I'm just curious. So so it's 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 been on fire in the stock market. And 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 I guess, uh, whatever, it's kind of a lame question, right? But is this is is this really one of the seven horsemen of the, of yeah, the American economy? I think or so. Is this, a, is this a bubble? No. Well, look, it's it's now valued. It was close higher than Amazon. It was like $1.78 trillion. Third largest U.S listed company market yeah, cap so of 1.8 I, I, I don't know if 1.8 trillion yeah i'm not sure that it is a more valuable company than amazon but i would say this which is the ai is going to go in lots of different directions right and we i think anyone trying to predict it it's going to be wrong in in most cases however the underlying infrastructure the chips that are needed to power uh the technology that's what they need right you kind of no matter what direction it takes they still need the underlying chips to do it and if you are the most successful manufacturer of those chips, um, I think kind of, you know, I don't know what direction AI is going to go in, but it's going to happen. It is happening. And as long as the it, it continues, so unless it gets outlawed entirely somehow, um, I think that NVIDIA is in great shape. I think Intel is going to be in great shape too. And so does that mean that you, look, I am not a stock picker by any means. So does that mean that you should buy the stock today? 
when the company's market cap is 1.8 trillion? I, I, I don't know. I actually don't buy individual stocks, so I, I really don't know. But if you're saying to me long term, is this a bubble or is this company in the right place at the right time doing the right thing? I think it's the latter. Um, you have one recommendation. And yeah, it's sort the, of a weird recommendation yeah. by a non-recommendation. Yeah, okay. So, and I asked you before, so there's a, a novel by a guy named Terry Hayes called I Am Pilgrim, and it came out, I think, around a decade ago. I think it's the best thriller novel I've ever read, and I think a lot of people who have read it would agree with that. And it got a tremendous amount of attention in press. You, you had heard of it. Mm -hmm, um, yeah, sure. I think I read it, actually, but now that I'm remembering, but I, I can't remember. And... Um, then he's been right for a long time. Like, he was one of those, like, what happened to that guy? And then finally, last week, last week, I think so, his, two weeks ago, uh, his new book came out called The Year of the Locust. It's not a sequel, but it was his next CIA thriller book. And it was really long. I don't remember, 600 pages or 700. It was, it was very long. And I didn't love it. I mean, I read it, and I, I thought it was pretty good for the first three quarters, and then the last quarter, he switched genres, and it went from sort of spy thriller into sort of like fantasy dystopia, um, kind of like those novels that our kids read when they were, you know, like in middle school, you know, The Hunger Games and all that kind of stuff. And it was sort of like, what the fuck is this? And I finished it just because I was, I'd read so much of it, and I, I didn't, I kind of knew, and by the way, he writes it, the author is the main, the main character is the narrator, and he's telling you what happened after the fact. So you know he survives because he's telling you that after the fact. So I even knew what would happen, right? Clearly right. he would survive. And I wasn't even that curious how he would survive. But I just kind of forced my way through it anyway. Um, so I would say I do not recommend The Year of the Locust. But I still do think that I Am Pilgrim, if you're looking for like a great, fast-paced, fun spy thriller, is, is one of the best ones ever written. Thank you, Bradley. See you next week. Thanks, you. Firewall is recorded at my bookstore, P&T Knitwear, located at 180 Orchard Street on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We'd love to hear from you with questions, feedbacks, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on LinkedIn. And to keep up with what's on my mind and my latest writing, please follow my new substack at bradleytush.substack.com. Thanks again for listening.